0: Hello, hello. This is episode 58 with If It's New Hall. If you aren't already signed up for my mailing list, I encourage you to go to the show notes or my website, basically any page to sign up for my mailing list. The newsletter goes out every week on Thursday evening. You are the first to know about any updates or new information, and there's always a cool message attached to it. So you can sign up over there. Now, just a bit about today's guest. I was gonna share more about her specific journey when we talk to her. So I'm gonna leave the intricacies to her. It's a fascinating story. But in a nutshell, she runs a consulting business. And what she does, in essence, is work with individuals and families on treatment planning and like what the heck to do when navigating recovery. So step-down options, residential programs aftercare plans, just navigating any point of recovery. And she's the person who can connect you with who you need to connect with and also see you through because this is a complicated and difficult process. So she's the one who holds your hand. ABIDS has worked for a variety of treatment centers, continues to do some consulting on the side now, But she is really well connected with a lot of different programs and a lot of different people. She was a founding member and the secretary of IADEP New York, which is our lovely IADEP chapter. She served on the advisory board of CSAB. So that's the Center for the Study of Anorexia and Bulimia, I believe, in New York City. It's like the place to go for eating disorder treatment. And on the board of the Binge Eating Disorder Association, she has worked with dozens, probably more at this point of families and individuals just to help them find the right treatment resources. So naturally, we're talking about what to do if you're in this position, whether it's you or you're a family member and you really have no idea what to look out for. You have no idea what to do. You have no idea how to deal with ambivalence. You're terrified and sprinkled with tons of her really entertaining stories Ibbets is going to share all of it with us today. All right, Ibbets, I'm so excited for this because you have a very unique perspective on things and a pretty unique, uh, I guess, job description, if you will. So, maybe just to start us off, like, what do you do in this eating disorder world?
1: What do you do do exactly? What what is that (laughs) title? What is this all about? Thanks so much for having me. This is so awesome. I'm Ibbots Newhall. I am a treatment resource consultant, and you might question, what on earth is that? And after a lot of years in outreach and working with teams and really seeing the ways in which individuals and families were really struggling, really understanding the different elements that were necessary in treatment and the amount of time that would take and the different components that were that it would take... It seemed to me that people needed a helping hand. They needed someone to help them wade through all the different information, to wade through all the different the different pieces of advice they were getting, and to be able to really think clearly about what the next best steps would be, whether that was in choosing a residential treatment program or where do we start or do we start at a lower level of care and what happens in residential treatment and what do we need to do afterwards? And I saw people struggling with this over and over again and thinking, well, of course, Janie can go back to college right after treatment. And when I worked for treatment programs, we would all go, no, 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 no. We, (laughs) we need some more time to get all of this recovery baked in. So Having seen that over and over again, I thought I just taking this from a parent point of view and the point of view of someone who has been in that eating disorder brain herself, I thought families and individuals really could use some guidance. And I was also really lucky that I had made so many contacts across the country in my career that I felt that I could draw on those friends and resources to bring them to people's doorsteps in in effect and to get them lined up with people and programs and and different options that they might not even know about or know existed.
0: So in essence, you're like the beginning person. If someone's just like, "Ah, I don't know what to do, even I can be beginning,
1: I can be middle, I can be end. People often reach out to me at different points along the way, whether they're an individual or a family member, spouse, parents, whatever it happens to be. So I can jump in at different points along the way. I think it is often most helpful if I can start with a family and individual at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't always work like that. And sometimes uh, you hit a bit of a speed bump and you think, oh, what do we do here? We need a little little extra help. So that's where where I can come in.
0: I love that. I mean, it's also so perfectly unique. Like I'm a therapist. There are tons of therapists. There are tons of dietitians and residential programs. And it's just sort of information out there if you don't know the ins and outs. So you're the who knows what and who. It's a way
1: to put it it into some sort of understandable context. And what I'll often suggest to families and individuals, if you have a team or even just one team member, what is that professional recommending and why? What are the things that that professional is recommending for you? That professional may have some wonderful ideas about programs or it may be a set of requirements that are necessary. And the individual and the family may also have their own thoughts about what might be important and what, what do we need to know and what are, where are we going and what are we working towards. And so trying to take all that different information and put it to the direction of finding the best fit, whatever level of care or situation it requires.
0: Yeah. So how does someone end up doing something like this? And I'm sure it's not just one answer. So maybe start with, with whatever you mean, you point. Mean, you mean doing what I do? Yeah, yeah, doing what you do.
1: You know, it's a long
0: and twisted road. How much time do we have? Well, for a story, as yeah. much time as we need. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I'll just start quickly at
1: the beginning. I was an actor. I did commercials and some theater, and I worked at that for 25-plus years. And full disclosure, I've had my own struggles. I suffered with anorexia in my 20s. I was, you know, that sort of intense, driven personality, and I... What do you mean? uh, Well, I... (laughs) I, What do I mean? Um, I like to win, (laughs) I'm just going to lay it out there, super competitive in everything that I do. And I think that it really landed with me. It just felt like something that was achievable. That I, the more weight that I lost, how exhilarating it was. The more I exercised, how exhilarating it was until the point where it was really beginning to affect me in all aspects of my life, my relationships my career, couldn't really understand why I wasn't getting hired. Um, You know, what could possibly be going wrong? (laughs) And so I cycled in and out of that for a number of years, got married, got pregnant. And that was the beginning of my climb out of the eating disorder because I, I had to eat. I ate intuitively for the first time in many, many years because I had to listen to my body and it was a revelation. And I remember thinking, this was after our daughter was born and I was thinking, oh my God, the time that I took, the time that I I spent thinking about what to eat or what not to eat or when to exercise or when not to exercise, all those things. And how much time and energy I had spent with that, as opposed to the other things in my life that were so much more meaningful. And here I had this yummy little, wonderful daughter. And fast forward now with two children, I have a daughter who is in her senior year. I'm going to try not to cry. Her senior year in high school. And um, she was in a prep school. This was my bright idea because I thought, you know, this would be great for her. And it was a a real pressure cooker, just something I deeply regret. And she got into college early and came home and everything was just, she was so relieved. We were all so relieved. It had been a really tough experience. And then she started to restrict. And right before our very eyes, the light in her eyes went out. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe what I was seeing. And here I've been in this body and brain myself. I had done this. And it was my husband who said, its, we have a problem here. This is, I mean, he just saw it almost immediately. He said, we have a real problem here. And I said, oh, good heavens. No, um, you know, she's much too sensible for that. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I should have known from my own experience that that you know, much too sensible for that was you know was that was far too rational uh, a thought. And she lost a tremendous amount of weight very quickly, and we intervened very quickly. We got the school involved, and we were, and she kept dropping weight, and it was scarier and scarier. At that point, I re- really knew nothing. This was back in two thousand and two, and we were thinking we were going to have to take her out of school and that she was not going to be able to go to college and every dream she had and every dream we had you know we're just it's going to be you know maybe it was not going to happen and my husband and i just said okay if that's the way it's going to be that's the way it's going to be we got very lucky through a series of events and you know things that people said to her just kind of woke her up and the only way I can describe it is we were able to sort of catch her and pull her back from the brink. But we told her that we were not going to send her to college. She was not going to have her summer plans. None of that was going to happen until she was strong and well enough to do it. We were just not going to be those parents. So we we were some of the lucky ones. I know now that she cycled in and out of it for a number of years with various behaviors. We're now pretty honest with each other about what each of us did in our lives. So fast forward a few years and I had been an actress for many many years and I it was beginning to kind of slow down and I was thinking I need to get a you know a job job here <laughs> and uh, and then my husband was in the financial services world and he was helping to bring together some of the financial backing for what was to become Timberline Knolls and I thought this sounds really interesting. They had a, you know, they're going to have a school attached to it and I thought gosh, if I had known that there was a place that had that at the time we were so we were just in the woods. We were in the the wilderness on what what to do at the time. And I thought if we had known that that there there was a place like this or there could be a place like this, that might have given us a sense of of relief that you know some of that fear that we had about putting a child into treatment about could she continue her education maybe that would have calmed us down a little bit and so I basically um, I I talked them into hiring me. Um, of <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I'd be great at this. I knew nothing. I knew no one. <laughs> no one knew me. <laughs> no one knew the program because it was brand new. I mean, how hard could it be? And it was a steep learning curve, that <laughs> was for sure. But I had a lot of patient people who were very, very helpful and taught me tremendous, tremendous things over time. Those mentors and teachers are, are almost too numerous to mention all the people who gave wonderful presentations at conferences while I was writing things down. Um, But Kim Dennis at TK uh, was always amazing. I would say that the team at Oliver Pyatt Centers, Wendy Oliver Pyatt, a mentor and friend, still is. We'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. So that's how I began. And, you know, in a million words or less, that's how I landed here, and that's. But I saw from those first days, I saw that families and individuals were looking at treatment as kind of a a one stop in out quick kind of deal, and not realizing what kind of effort it was going to take and what kind of resolve it was going to take on the part of their outpatient team, the residential team. Their loved one, the family and everyone really working together to really plan a careful recovery plan that wasn't just jump out of residential treatment and jump back into their lives because it was just it was I could see very early on how difficult that was. And so I always kept that in my head and started to really advocate for robust treatment plans, wherever I worked and, um, really developed at, at Oliver Pyatt, this kind of plan to really think through this with teams, with families. And then I put that into what I do now. I
0: love that. So, I mean, you sort of alluded to a, a lot of different factors well, already, a lot of different things. Of, <laughs> but even just putting it into, um, A couple of things. Obviously, there isn't enough time to say everything. But if somebody is contemplating getting help, Mm -hmm. whether it's for themselves or Mm -hmm. for a family member, what do you think is important for them to know?
1: I think as a family member, it's important to understand the seductive power of this disease if they can possibly begin to comprehend, though I think it is very difficult unless you've been in that brain yourself, how that seductive power permeates every corner of that individual's being. And, you know, sometimes I I have referred to it as a demonic possession, Um, you know, I will say that of myself, but for the individual, this is terrifying. Even if intellectually that loved one knows very well how destructive this disease is and what it's taking away from them, it is terrifying and scary beyond belief to think of taking that first step. And if they've been through this a number of times to think think about taking that painful step yet again, Um, And for parents, too, to understand what that undertaking is and that fear that that loved one has and for the individual, because often when we're in on that inside looking out and feeling like everyone's against us and trying to, you know, we we, kind of blocking out and filtering and, you know, not hearing exactly what people are saying, mm-hmm. and it, it it can be under the guise of um, they don't understand who I am, they don't understand what I can do, they don't understand how I feel, um, they don't understand me, and really ascribing um, different kinds of motives to. Um, uh, to family members and individuals and friends, where um, you know, it's you don't always hear it, and you don't always hear that concern and worry that is really well meant. Um, I often say to to parents and I say to individuals who have parents that um being on both sides of this, i and seeing. And having that terror of not knowing what to do as a parent that, you know, it's an imperfect science, parenting. And sometimes the biggest mistakes that we make are ones that we make because we do love our kids so much and we're trying to do the right thing. Sometimes we get lucky and we do the right thing. And sometimes we just make mistakes, big ones. And sometimes we keep making them because you get into a pattern. So that may be more than that individual can take in when they're really at the cusp and we're trying to figure out what those next best steps are. Um, But I think it's important for the individual to really to try as best they can to think about. Their before life. And mm-hmm. to think about what they, in their heart of hearts, want to be able to do. And sometimes there's not much room in their brains to even think about that. Um and sometimes as families and loved ones, partners, spouses, friends, you know, sometimes we have to do very difficult setting of boundaries with an individual because they, The thinking can be so clouded, Um, and I've seen it over and over again, and I am, I think, stunned every single time, sometimes, with these amazing individuals who have so many gifts and so much possibility, and there's this narrow, tiny pinprick of light through which they are looking, and they don't see any other path. Um, and this can sometimes extend too to when they're, when they're getting a little better, um, you know, that there is a world of possibility out there now that, you know, that there's more sort of oxygen and health around you anyway, um, that there's, they are just so much there. And really with each person, I think it's, it's a little different. Um, but you know, sometimes, um, A parent will say, but you don't know my child. You don't know Mm -hmm. my spouse. You don't know what my son is capable of. And I find myself saying, I don't. I don't know all that magic. And we're going to try and use that. We'll try and use what magic they have and what strengths they have. But what I do know and what the professionals that you're working with know is the way this disease works in the brain and body and takes over, and the similarities that we see from case to case and what it does to people,
0: yeah, so even just coming at it, you know from two separate perspectives mm-hmm. as an individual or as a family okay. member, which you've been both, so not that you know what people are going through because you've gone through it, but that you well, i wouldn't i wouldn't
1: I wouldn't assume. <laughs>
0: No, of course not, but it does give you a unique perspective to potentially put yourself in somebody else's shoes and not just as somebody who's experienced it, but someone who's experienced it as a parent um, and herself that you Mm -hmm. can sort of see so many different sides to it. And of course now professionally. So it it also sounds like you're sort of highlighting, especially when somebody is in the throes of their eating disorder, that that's the thing that they focus on. Yeah. um whether it's a which came first the chicken or the egg right, in terms right, of a consequence right, yeah. it almost doesn't ma- matter but it sort of narrows their focus in terms of what they want to do and almost their optimism for what can be next right so sort of understanding it from okay this is the person's perspective and this is the parent or the family member's perspective and it probably isn't the same so how can we work that through
1: Correct. And I think that there's some, you know, I'm not a clinician, let me just say, but there, you know, there are some wonderful techniques out there and in ways to, to both validate and kind of set what that boundary might be. And I think it's, it's really important for the family to understand what it feels like inside that person's body and brain and heart And that an individual can really feel under attack from all sides. And so it's no wonder uh, we have our boxing gloves up. Mm -hmm. And to understand that they're gonna need both some prodding and some understanding. I may have mentioned uh, to you that I put together an education series for, for families called the Recovery Roadmap Series. And some of it is kind of helping families really understand both the disease, what it feels like, um, how to collaborate with your loved one and the team while they're in treatment. And a lot of it is really fully understanding the depth and breadth of the, d- the disease in your in your loved one. And it's... Uh, and how to be strong and yet kind at the same time. It's a hard balance to strike when you're scared and worried and angry. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that there is there is anger and there is grief and upset. And I think that for families, there is often this sense of loss as the disease begins to take things away from your loved one's future or what things could have been or what their path was. And you see at different points along the way, how destructive that's been. So there's so many different elements at work on both sides. And I think it's also hard too, when, when you have a loved one who is struggling and, you know, to tolerate that, their distress, it's very, very, very difficult. Um, not many of us are able to do it, you know, with great calm, you know, a good long walk and a lot of breathing. Uh, <laughs> I don't really breathe, uh, Rachel. I just I just clench. So I'm a fine one. <laughs> I clench and look, you know, anxious and nervous. Um, That's you know, a better
0: option. I, we all know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone, I don't know how to spell Zen. I don't know how to spell breathing exercises, <laughs> but I know people who do. So, I can, I can do that that. matters, (laughs) right? (laughs) Don't come to me for breathing.
0: (laughs) But, um, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about, um, the complicated nature when we're talking about embarking on this journey, Mm -hmm. figuring out what to do specifically, what I mean is ambivalence and ambivalence is I don't know if I can say this per se, but I'm guessing that there's ambivalence with basically everyone. And so depending on the degree of ambivalence, some people are much more motivated than others and they're like, let yep. me do this. I'm terrified, but I'm going to do it. And some people are more of the side of, I'm terrified and I'm angry at you and I do not want to do this at all. So And digging the heels in. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Um, so it's all,
1: I mean, I think Everyone is ambivalent, no matter that that individual who understands the severity of the disease and what it's taken away and how how bad it's gotten. Even that individual, once arriving at, let's say, a higher level of care, there's this oh, no, 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 I, I no, 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 I did not mean this. I did not, mm-hmm. no, did I say I wanted to do this? No, 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 I did yeah. not mean
0: this. You know, no, no. And then <laughs> like, if it's Florida with a pool and access to a beach kind of thing, that's not that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. If, if it could be like a,
1: you know, a spa where you didn't have to eat actually, um, <laughs> you know, like you didn't actually have to eat any food, that would be awesome. Um, you know, I think the enormity of that mountain is is. Pretty steep, no matter where who it is, at what point along the way it is. So I think it's important for families to understand it. I think it's important for that individual too. Is I don't think that someone is ever going to be totally, fully, yeah, I gotta do this on board. Mm -hmm. I think there's gonna be something about it that's scary you're not every question that you ask of a program or no matter what level of care it is, not all those boxes are going to be checked. And so I think sometimes we're in that, that Goldilocks, we want everything to be just right, you know, not too hot, not too cold, not too soft, not too hard. It's pretty difficult to get every, every little, you know, desire, want checked. And so we have to kind of sometimes look at what the larger goals are and what is the team recommending and what are the things that, you know, I as an individual know that I need to work on and to understand too, that there are going to be a lot of people walking with you, um, that yes, you're gonna to have to be doing so much of this work internally, but that there is a village truly around you. And it, it, it's still hard. And I just understand that ambivalence is normal. Um, and if if an individual is not ambivalent, I I would be curious about that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> weird.
1: I frankly have not actually met anyone who wasn't <laughs> ambivalent to a certain degree. Yeah, um, And for the families is to understand, you know, sometimes, and I think we might get this a bit from some of the addiction language that somebody mm-hmm. has to be ready to recover. They have to be ready. Um, and maybe as my colleague, Wendy Wright says, in uh, the recovery roadmap, that sometimes it there might be a tiny corner in there. There might be a tiny ember that knows. And so we do try to speak to and encourage and blow on that ember to get it yeah. to be a little bit more, you know, on fuego, on flame, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to move things a bit. But, you know, we're never probably going to get full buy-in because it's, it's really asking really too much, I think, and expecting too much of someone to be able to say, yes, I really want to go away for a couple of months. And I, I really want to have to sit down at meals and eat this food and do this deep, difficult work. Sure. I'm all over it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that that happens.
0: And, uh, and that's normal. So what about some people I'm sure you've encountered tons of people this way that it's not even so much ambivalence that they feel two ways it's more so that they're resistant and they're not interested yeah is there anything to do i mean i know we can't like sort of chain people and say well you're gonna go um no the the
1: duct taping someone to the car is usually not you know it's it's frowned on (laughs) um so so we don't do that much as we think "Hmm, how do we how do we how do we get them to go You know, I think that there are, and if, if your listeners, some of your listeners are individuals who are suffering, you know, understand that I'm, I'm working on this both from the perspective, of having worked with teams and having worked with families as well as individuals themselves. And, you know, I think it is You know, I think the scary thing is sometimes that resistance and then the realization that they absolutely must do something sometimes comes too late, Mm -hmm. which is what keeps us all up at night. Um, And I think for that individual is to really, is to try to imagine a life that is not quite so painful, where everything doesn't have all these sharp edges. I actually i one of my uh, very first clients when I started this, and i I often tell individuals this story, and she had a very serious trauma history. She had been in and out of many, many, many programs. I'd actually uh, worked closely with her family and with the team uh when she'd been at uh one of the treatment programs that I worked for so i i knew this young woman pretty well and in fact we'd had a couple of you know i was trying to recommend some things and one call she was great and the next call she was screaming ex- expletives at me and calling <laughs> me names and this is where a thick skin really comes in handy um and uh, unfazed i must say so um but I I loved her. I mean, she was just, she was just a spitfire in the best sense, but it also got in her way. So she's going into treatment. This is for, you know, this is my very first client. I get her into the treatment program. She's really making a lot of strides doing this treatment work. And I have this, Marvelous treatment plan, aftercare plan. And keep in mind, she'd done a million different things. And she didn't want to do any of my treatment plan. She she said, I'm so sick of. And for some of your listeners who are in, in this situation, I'm I I've been in and out of treatment. I've talked about food so much. I've talked about this so much. I have to figure this out. I have to figure out how to do this and not have all this, you know, the stuff around me. I was not happy her team was not happy well she did it what she did it she did it um she had she always had the tools it's a little like Dorothy and the the ruby slippers she was always able able to get from Oz back to Kansas she just didn't know it and Mm -hmm. she didn't realize that she had the power um and I think that that you know, that was true for, for this, this young woman. And I tell the story for two reasons. One is sometimes as professionals, um, you know, and I, we have to kind of have this be a conversation and say, all right, we can try this, but, we might want to put a time limit on it if we see things beginning to get a little funky and we have to have an agreement about how how frank we're all going to be and all of that. I think that having it work is, is sometimes the exception as opposed to the norm where you're trying to do it completely on your own. But something that she said always has stuck in my mind. And she said, you know, people would tell me That when I got to the other side, how good it would be and how good it would feel. She said, I didn't believe them because I was always in that middle period of recovery, which is, you know, it's a couple steps forward. It's a couple steps back. It's a couple steps to the side, some stumbles. And, you know, trying to get there is not easy and this is my aside, not to tell somebody that's, you know, they're just going to feel so great right off the bat because it's a process. And this is what this story illustrates to me. And she said, I was wondering when it was going to happen when I was going to have this like, ta-da. Yeah, (laughs) She said, then suddenly I realized one day that I was there and that without my knowing it, And without really realizing it, little by little, I was no longer planning out exactly what I would eat and what I wouldn't eat, how much I would exercise or not exercise to compensate. You know, all those hours and hours and hours that were taken up by those eating disorder planning thoughts. And she finished graduate school and she got married. And she has a baby and she's going to be a clinician. Wow! And I, to me, this is my dream. You know, they don't have to become a clinician. Uh, <laughs> they don't have to be married. They don't have to have a baby, but the, just the notion that, you know, there is this life that's possible. And she, <laughs> We laugh now about the expletives that she used, like, F, <laughs> F you and all your effing this, that, and the other thing. It's like, okay. So, um, can I just finish my point, please? <laughs> <laughs> so, that's, I think, I, I, I always try to tell individuals that, you know, it's not aha, uh-huh. it's, oh, oh. Here I am.
0: Yeah. And it also sounds like the the biggest piece, the most profound piece is the absence of all this anxiety and planning and obsession. It's not so much all of a sudden your life is rainbows and butterflies and it's totally, I mean, life is still life, but it's just sort of you look around and you're like, oh, I'm doing life. I'm not obsessing. Not doing, I'm not
1: doing, you know, eating disorder meal planning. Exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is which is important. I hope it's not uh, a discouragement to some people in yeah. that it's you know we're working toward but yeah, do, I mean it would be wonderful, if, yeah, it'd be wonderful if you know, having
1: gotten to the other side of this hideous thing, we all, you know, everything was like, ooh, yes, fabulous. You know, <laughs> looking like Beyonce with the, you
0: know, <laughs> I woke up like
1: fan blow you know, <laughs> it's like that's what I want. I want to I want to be Beyonce. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um It's, uh, it's, you know, you, you put it so beautifully. Life is still life. It is, it has its bumps, its bruises, um, it's, it's tragedies, its victories, it's, you know, wonder its difficulties, but it's the time that you feel like you, like everything else was in this teeny, tiny, itty bitty margin. And I think there is a, um, you know, you asked me a question before we got started about that narrowed focus about what's possible. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've now lived, you know, a number of decades, shall we just say, quite a few, Um, a whole bunch. One of the things that I've learned over time is that there are so many twists and turns and opportunities and things that a path that you you might take that, you know, you didn't know was even possible. And so to be able to have that and to be kind of awake and present enough and, and not have it so narratives like I've, I've got to go to this particular school and I've got to get this particular GPA and I've got to get this particular job and I could have this particular life. You know, it would be, it would be wonderful if that really truly changed how we felt about ourselves, but it doesn't, it doesn't really change things. I was uh, early on in my acting career. I had, I had a series of very good kind of breaks and I, I got a Broadway job. I was the understudy for lead in a Broadway show. And I just thought I was the bomb and like, woo-hoo, me go me, <laughs> you know, all of that Beyonce hair flowing, blowing. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ibbits new hall, you know, in full form and a few weeks, you know, a number of weeks in, I realized that I was, I was still the same person, you know, it hadn't really changed me. I still had the same highs and lows, you know, the relationship problems I had were still the same after I told everybody I was going to tell that I'd gotten this great job and, you know, and they oohed and odd, I couldn't tell them again that I got in it. It was like, I couldn't keep reliving them going, Oh my God, that's amazing. And I realized since when I ran through everybody who was going to say that, that I was, you know, I was still left with who I was, which is a great disappointment.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> it, it hadn't really transfigured me in some way. It was great. Don't get me wrong, but it really hadn't really hadn't totally changed things. So,
0: Yeah. I have one last question. I'm not even sure if there's an answer to this, but I guess I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about a few different cases that I've encountered and I'm sure you have as well in terms of maybe the person is a little bit more okay with getting help, whether it's therapy or any form of higher level of Mm -hmm. care, but the family or particularly the parents, if it's let's just say like a college age student are... Maybe less on board. What do you do in that sort of situation where it's almost like the parents need more convincing?
1: I think there are a lot of factors at work. You know, there's often the push to get back to school, or what happens if, you know, so and so, um, my child, does not take that internship, or what happens if a, B or C. And, you know, it's it can be very difficult uh, for them to really understand what are the forces at work. So, I mean, I've had to really, and, and sometimes it may be one parent, not both. Um, we'll see that where, um, you know, sometimes I'll have a dad or a mom that is really not on board. And, and, you know, there's usually, there may be a softy in, <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in the relationship too, that just says, I know she can do it. This will be so damaging if he doesn't go and do this, this college or internship or job. So there's a lot of education and um, I have very much a kind of a, a very blunt approach. Um. As a parent, I do try to put it in context, as I know uh, what that's like. Um, and sometimes, too, you know, they're just they're just they can be a little scared of their child being mad at them. Mm, yeah. Again, a lot of different layers to to kind of peel away. And I often have to really tell a family that they have to focus on what this individual needs now, because if it's not addressed, um, we we talk about this in the recovery roadmap series, and, and there's the analogy to cancer. If your child had cancer or Lyme disease, you wouldn't say, oh, you only need to do like a little bit of treatment on that. You know, I've had families where I've had to literally metaphorically because i'm on one end of the phone and they're on the other sit them down and explain i actually have been work, i've worked with a family where the spouse was not on board and the rest of the family was wildly concerned about their adult daughter and you know i had to really get in there and explain no it's not just that she's tiny and that she's always been this way from your perspective, but over time, this is going to be a law of diminishing returns and had to give some significant psychoeducation. I often refer families to Jen Gaudiani's book, um, Sick Enough. That's a great one. To really understand, said, you, you know, if we want to take all the relationship stuff and all of the dynamic out of it, let's look at the science. Let's look at what's going on. Let's look at the way that the body and brain are fueling this disease back and forth and, you know, how the, the worsening of the behaviors and, and how that, that creates those subtle and then not so subtle brain changes. What does it work here? So that's sometimes the the wording that I use. Um, and I, I just, I warn them that, you know, at certain point in our relationship, I'm going to tell them what they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And I don't really, (laughs) I don't really care that they might be upset. My only job, my only focus is to help that individual get well and strong. And that's the most important thing. And there are lots of different ways to get there, but I want to make sure that we don't
0: lose our focus about
1: getting there and not get sidetracked.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate this. I know there's obviously so much more to say. And if anybody wants to learn more about you or some of your work, where can they find you? You can take a looky loo at my website, which is
1: very creatively www.ibitsnewhall.com, I B B I T S N E W H A L L. I also put together this tool for families with uh, Wendy Wright, who's a financial and eating disorder therapist. Um, out of Colorado, who's just amazing, and Becky Wright, who is a parent coach. And, you know, we just came at this from all perspectives. So we have the Recovery Roadmap series. And this is really, you know, for families to learn how to be both supportive and to help find the resources that they need to get their loved one uh, the appropriate treatment. So that's, that's that. And I also do some consulting, full disclosure, for Within Health. And uh Gail and Hope, both of which are um the brain children, I should say, of my former boss, Wendy Oliver Pyatt. So I'm doing some some consulting with them, which is super fun. So um uh I, I'm I'm a big fan. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but uh you anyway. Can say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, I just uh uh you know they're they're it's exciting to be able to work with all different kinds of people and families and different realms. Um, I will say as kind of a final word that um, for some reason, um, I get a lot of referrals through clinicians. Um, and they they, um, so as a result, I tend to get really interesting and complex, cases sometimes with a, an unusual presentation i think because people hope and i wish i could tell everyone that i was always successful that maybe because i have a good network of contacts that i'll be able to to connect them and i do my best to do so but there's so many things that we have yet to learn about this disease and all those really complicating and nuanced elements of of the disease, you know, whether it's some sort of autoimmune response or trauma history or um, neuroatypical presentation. We, you know, we really do have to understand the body and brain that that individual is, is living in. And you know, it just to put the lie to what I said before, we know the disease. There are also some very particular things that we must look out after and look for and address sensitively in a sophisticated and nuanced way. And so that is my hope for treatment and you know, you just press play and I could just yakety yak for hours on end, but uh, this has been such a privilege and I appreciate so much that, you know, for, for bringing me on and asking such lovely questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.